plane had been hijacked and was coming in to Malta. Uh, a reporter saw this on uh, the, uh, the Twitter feed, and he questioned uh, this Joseph about uh, what's the source that you are credible that uh, this has happened. Uh, another reporter responded on Twitter uh, to this reporter and says, I don't think you realize that you're speaking to the prime minister of Malta who reported this. You know those moments when you realize or don't realize who you're actually talking to? I call them the double facepalm moments of, oh my word. Uh, you maybe say something about a subject thinking you know about it, only to realize later that that person's really an expert on that subject. Maybe you criticize someone or something, not realizing they are highly involved in that thing. Maybe you are telling someone something that you think they want to hear, but you don't realize till later that you got them all wrong. Today, we are going to see someone that gets another person all wrong, who does not realize who he is talking to. A facepalm moment. We're going to see through this interaction between a messenger and a king, who this king truly is, what he represents, what kind of leader that he is. So let's find out together, shall we? Second Samuel chapter 1. I'm just going to read the first 10 verses, and then you'll be surprised as you hear the second part later. That's kind of how narrative works. Let's give you some surprise. So the first part first, and then we'll see what happens in the second part of the narrative. Hear God's word. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites, the Amalekites, sorry, I always get that wrong, and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. The man fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Well, it happened to be on Mount Geboa, the young man said. And there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I am still alive. So I stood beside him. And killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head, and the band on his arm, and have brought them here to my Lord. The word of the Lord. The book of Second Samuel. There is one person in the Bible that is talked about more than 
anyone else other than Jesus. And that is David. In fact, this whole book is dedicated about him and to him. Here we have this whole book, his ascension to being king all the way to his death and the ups and downs of his kingdom. Battles between nations, backstabbing, both figuratively and literally, love affairs, weak-standing people going against corruption, major family dysfunction, attempted coups, a king dancing in his underwear, and it's all flanked in poetry. This is an exciting book. And this is Game of Thrones type, you know? Game of Thrones plagiarized this book. That's what I think. It is an exciting book to read. And that's why I encourage you, this week, maybe this month, read this book. If you think, oh, the Bible's boring, it's not very fun, it is not boring. Trust me. If you read the stuff in here, you're going to be blown away. It'll take you just about an hour to two hours to read the whole book. Make that maybe your plan this week, that you would read the book of 2 Samuel. Well, it is an historical book in the sense that it tells about all this history of the King David and these battles and these wars. That is one part of the book. And also, it's a biography talks about the life of David, the pressures of leadership, the weight of his job, the drama and dysfunction of family. There are things in this biography of David that would speak to maybe things that you might experience. But I'm going to tell you this. This book is more than just drama. <laughs> it's more than just history. It's more than just a biography about David. Instead, this book primarily is about a loving God who is committed to work for his people. His people like David. How he uses David to fulfill his covenant promise, his committed love to his people. So through David, through wars, through family drama, through dancing in your underwear, let us see a loving God that is committed to Israel, committed to David, committed to the church. Well, it's kind of a misnomer to make it first and second Samuel. You can't really look at these books separately. They're really were together. They were not separated till later. The reason that it is a 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is because scrolls could only hold so much. So they had a scroll for the first part of the book of Samuel, which was one collection, and then a scroll for the second part of the book of Samuel. And that's why it was divided 1 and 2 Samuel. So it's really important to see this, to see that this is one whole. There's not a break. Now, We've already gone through the book of Judges, which came before Samuel. And we've gone through the book of 1 Samuel. 
And now we are here at the book of 2 Samuel. So I want to do a little review if you weren't with us as we went through Judges like three and a half years ago, and then Samuel a year and a half ago, to kind of catch you up to where we are right now. The book of Judges is about Judges. You see, Israel was 12 tribes, and these 12 tribes were really divided at times, and they would sometimes war against each other. Other nations would come against them, and they would be in trouble. It was a nation scattered. And God would raise up these judges when Israel rebelled, these tribes rebelled, and these judges would rule for periods of time to try to unite Israel and protect them. But as we read the book of Judges, it got worse and worse and worse, the kind of judges like Samson. And then we see it is really bad at the end, and that's when we get to 1 Samuel. Samuel, who was a prophet of the people, probably what many would say, the last judge. He heard the people crying out, we want a king. We want someone that would unite all the nations, that would be in front of all of the different tribes. And so they cried out for a king. A king to be like the other nations' kings. And Samuel warned them. He said, you know, kings are not always good. In fact, They're corrupt. They will do bad things to you. You only should have one king, and that is God. But the people still cried out, we want a king. We want a king. And then God answered them through Samuel. And he anointed a king that looked like the kings of other nations, strong and big and rash. And here came Saul. And we see that it's true what Samuel said. Kings are corrupt. Saul looked great at the beginning, but then he started to disobey God. And it got worse. He murdered priests and children. He tried to kill David twice and his own son. Got so bad, he started consulting a witch for what he should be doing. But through this, God came to his people. And he said, Saul will not be my anointed king. Instead, I will raise up another. One that is not just good on the outside, but good on the inside. One that is after me. A man after my own heart. David. And so, the book of 1 Samuel is kind of the digression of Saul and the progression of David. How David flees from Saul. How David gathers people. How David is favored by God. That is really the whole book of 1 Samuel. And that's where it ends. It ends with the death of Saul. And this is where we begin 2 Samuel. Well, this is what we've been waiting for. We've been waiting all this time. Saul is gone. The bad king is no longer. Now David has his time to reign. He will be the good king. 
Well, the idea of having a king is foreign to many of us, especially as Americans, because we don't have a king, right? That's the, the Revolutionary War, you know? Maybe a few Australians have some um, association to kings and queens, but us here in America, we love our independence from a king and from a queen. But I think maybe we can relate to kings in a different way. The leaders in our lives, a boss, a teacher, a parent. And we can think of people that have been bad in those roles in our lives. See, maybe in understanding what a good king is, picture that great boss, that amazing teacher you had. Or maybe a loving father, a loving mother, a person that gets you, that understands you, that cares for you. Really, the thesis of this book, the book of 2 Samuel, is found in the end of it, in chapter 23, at David's deathbed. And on his deathbed, he has this word from the Lord about what it means to be a good leader. I'm just going to read for you right now. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Think of that picture. It's an image that God gives us of a good ruler. Like the the coming of the sun. Like that day where there's no clouds and it's beautiful outside. Or when the rain comes and you have that smell. We can picture that, right? As Wisconsinites in the summer. Think of that picturesque day this summer. That day that you just looked up at the sky. Or stood while the rain just fell on you. Or maybe you saw a sunrise. Picture that. That is a good king. That is a good leader. That is what God is trying to describe here in this book of 2 Samuel. You see, you want to get my main idea? Here it is. Wise leaders know their place. Wise leaders know their place. And David knows his. Well, we're ready for you, David. Take your place. Become king. Reign and rule over Israel. Well, it's not that simple. You see, it doesn't happen where David just takes the throne right away. And we see, through how David reacts in this story, what a wise leader does when the throne is right before him. Saul is gone. How will David respond? Well, let's see, shall we? After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. So we've heard in 1 Samuel 31 that Saul has died and Jonathan has died and a couple other of his sons. 
We have heard this, but David has not. We are in two days of waiting. This is a battle that happened 80 miles north. So it had taken a few days for any messenger to come down and tell David. Well, the third day has arrived. The messenger has come and is giving David the news. This is a time of transition. Am I in and out? Can you kind of hear me? Am I going in and out? No? Okay, good. Okay. So this is a time of transition. What will this new king be like? So we already heard the story ourselves of what's happened, but now it's being relayed to David. This messenger tells David what has happened. There's, Israel has sustained many losses. The Philistines have driven the people out of their cities and their land. Jonathan is dead. Saul is dead. And now David questions, how do I know this is true? How do I know what you're telling me really happened? And this is where the story gets a little bit different than what we heard in chapter 31. It seems like the story contradicts each other. What has happened here? Here, this man said, you know, I was watching as Saul was injured. He saw me, he called to me, he said, I am going to die. I am in trouble. The Philistines are against me. Take my life. And so I did. I took Saul's life. And to prove that it's true, I brought his crown. I brought his omelet. I've given it to you. It has happened. So we have one story where it says Saul asked his armor bearer to kill him. His armor bearer didn't, so he killed himself. That's what happened in 1 Samuel 31. And then here in 2 Samuel 1, we have this sojourner, this Amalekite, who says, I'm the one that killed Saul. Which story is true? Well, when in doubt, always trust the narrator. (laughs) Really don't trust a guy that tells the story himself. See, The Amalekite tells this story because he's trying to play to his advantage. He knew David and Saul's relationship. He knew what it was like. He knew that Saul tried to kill David. He knew that Saul was going after David time and time again, that David was the new anointed to be the next king. He knew that David was raising an army, that David was gaining power. He knew who the next king would be. So he thought, if I tell David that I'm the one that finished off his enemy Saul, and I present him the crown, the armlet, he will be pleased by my good news. For sure, I will get a promotion. I will have favor of the next king of Israel. Well, he's pressing his advantage. He's trying to win the spoils of war. Come on. What's the big deal with him lying about what really happened? Saul was dead anyway. He might have lied a little bit, but it doesn't change the situation that Saul is dead. He's no one important. He's just an Amalekite. A sojourner. 
He was just at the right place at the right time, and he was going to take advantage of it. Do you ever do that? Take advantage of the situation? Or maybe I'll exaggerate a story a little bit so I'll look better to someone. In fact, some of my stories just get better over time. (laughs) Maybe when my boss is around, I'll laugh a little bit louder at his jokes than anyone else's. Maybe I'll play the office politics and talk bad about someone or someone else. I just play the advantages. Maybe when my wife gets home, my husband gets home, and it really wasn't that bad with the kids, I'll say, man, it was horrible with the kids. Then they'll feel sorry for me, and I'll get a break. Do you ever press the advantage? I wonder, do we know our place? Who are we pleasing? Who is our true king? Our boss? Our coach? Our teacher? Our spouse? (laughs) They hold the cards, right, to my advantage. They hold the cards whether my life is good or bad. They are the king. No, you see... Our place is this. There is a greater king. There is one that sees everything we do, that knows when we lie, (laughs) that knows when we press the advantage, he knows when we fib. There is a God that knows everything about us in our innermost things. He sees it all. That is the king. That is our place under his authority. I think I've made this argument before to my friends that are not Christians. And they say, that's what's wrong with religion, Dan. It's fear tactics. There's some being out there that's controlling what we're supposed to do. That says, I'm supposed to live this way or that way. That is, that is what God is. Just fear tactics to get to live a certain way, to confine me, to restrict me, to have to act a certain way, be a certain way, be under the control of the church, whatever it might be. Well, I want to take that logic a little bit. Maybe you have that question yourself. You see, it just starts with a messenger, just a little lie. What happens if he starts becoming an advisor to David? What if he starts becoming a general to David? God forbid, what if this kind of guy that tells little lies becomes a king? I just play by my rules. There's no God that tells me what to do. I just play the advantages. Oh, it's no big deal now. But then let's extrapolate it if it's all the way to someone that's a ruler and a king. That's how dictatorships form. (laughs) That's how we have massive massacres through history. 
that people say there is no God. I play by my rules. There is no higher law. There are no higher principles. Listen, there's been a lot of bashing against the West. That's kind of a big thing nowadays, right? I don't think people realize that a lot of the reason the West is as profitable as it is is because Christian values of the rule of law is what we're based on. I'm not making arguments that we're a Christian nation. I'm not saying things like that. I'm just saying this, that that Christian ethic, that there is a rule of law, that there is authority above us, allows us to be a nation and a people that says we live by certain principles. We live under the fear and the authority of God. A good fear, a healthy fear. I wonder what would happen when that fear would be removed. Something to think about, okay? If you want to talk politics and stuff, I love talking it, so we can talk about that later. But something to think about. And it's something to think about with David. You think, here is a king that now is in this authority to make decisions and abide by certain principles. How has his character been shaped? It hasn't been formed overnight. See, David has been in these positions where he could cut corners. Whether it was tending the sheep whether it was putting on the armor to go against Goliath, whether it was the possibility when he was in the cave and he had the ability to kill Saul by himself, or when one of his generals said, you know what, David, I'll go and kill Saul so the blood isn't on your hands. I'll do it myself. And David said no. And now here is what David is presented with. Saul is dead. He didn't kill him. A friend of his didn't kill him. Now he can just accept the benefits. What will this king do? You see, David learned obedience through suffering. A suffering in righteousness. He didn't gloat. He didn't use power to settle scores. He didn't remove Saul and his house because they were a political threat. What would this good king do now? He has a chance to seize control of Israel. The crown is being presented to him. The first man to call him king, my Lord, is saying, take it, David. It is yours to have. But the thing is, this sojourner, this messenger, didn't realize the kind of king he was talking to. Let's find out how David responds, shall we? Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, uh, who told him, where do you come from? 
And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, How is that you are not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord anointed. It is so interesting that the first thing recorded after David realizes that Saul is dead is that he mourned and he wept. It's probably not what happened chronologically. The execution probably happened first. But the thing is, the narrator and the author has chosen to talk about the mourning First, because it is more important. It would be like this. Let's say uh, your friend or son or daughter goes to a Packer game. And they come back and report about the Packer game. And, you know, what happened at the end of the Packer game, they, they met Brett Favre. He just happened to be there. And they signed, he got his jersey signed. Now that happened at the end of the game, but when they, they come and tell you what happened to the game, the first thing they tell you is not who won the game. They didn't tell you about the Star Spangled Banner or the jets flying over or any of those things. No, they told you the most important thing first. I saw Brett Favre and he signed my jersey. You see, that's what the author says. This is the most important thing that has happened. David wept and he mourned. See, David did not take out vengeance and anger towards Saul. No, the first thing on his mind wasn't how I'm going to become king, how I'm going to rule. No, the first thing in his mind is how bad this was for Israel and for the Lord. He wasn't thinking about himself first. He was thinking about the brokenness of Israel and God's nation and God's anointed king. You see, David is a king that knows his place. His first concern isn't himself. It is the glory of God and his people. It is a realization that there is a greater king. It is not about him, but it is about the Lord. How do you respond when an enemy, someone that brings injustice against you, finally gets their due? What is your response? Yes. Awesome. I'm so glad they got what they deserved. I wonder... Do any of you fast for your own gain but that your enemies might come to repentance? Do you fast for your enemies? Do you fast that they would change their hearts?
You know, there's something about church discipline. You say, oh yeah, that's what the church does. They just bring discipline upon its people. No, you know the reason we do church discipline as a church? That God would be glorified. That there would be repentance and there would be reconciliation. I want you to know you have elders in your church that weep and grieve after sheep that do wicked things. We do not rejoice in when they just reap the benefits of their sin. We grieve at it. And we long that they would repent and they would be reconciled. And that God would be glorified. See, there is no winner in sin. Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is the voice of a good king. A good king is patient, wanting all to come to salvation. See, David cared more for God than for his own reign. Then David asked, where are you from? And we get more information about this man. I'm a sojourner, meaning he's an immigrant. He's come from the people of the Amalekites and he has settled in Israel. He knows Yahweh. He knows God. And that then lets David ask the next question. If you know God, if you live among us, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Didn't he know who he was talking to? Didn't he know he stood under the kingship of God? Didn't he know that no one can take the life of God's anointed except God himself? See, the mark of a good king, the mark of a good leader, is one that fears God. See, God's authority isn't dependent on David. <laughs> it's not dependent on Saul. It's not dependent on us. His authority comes from him, and he chooses to operate with people within his framework. Kings will come and go. Presidents will come and go. His authority isn't dependent upon them. Again, kingship is kind of hard to understand culture and how do we operate as kings but I was struck with it this week I was at a friend's house in Door County and there was a, a crown on the wall and I said what's this crown all about he said well my grandfather built this cabin 50 years ago he was a painter in Chicago and he came and built this cabin by himself. And then, of course, he had five kids, and they had kids, and all these family members used the cabin now, Door County. Of course, really, really nice. And he built this cabin. 
And we call him, our grandfather, the king. And there's a room in the cabin that's called the king room, which was his room. A Chicago painter, he doesn't have much, but he had this. He built this cabin. He created this family. He was the patriarch. He was the king over these things. But I asked my friend, what was your grandfather like? He was an alcoholic, gruff, and mean. I can be that way. I could be gruff and I could be mean. I worked so hard as a painter all my years. I created this cabin. I created this family. I can be any way I want to be. I ran from Saul. I could have taken his life twice. He ran after me. I had to be under other kings. I had to act insane. I had to do all these things. Now it's finally mine. I can do what I want to do. I can be king. That is not a good king. See, a good king says, there is a greater king, and I live under his obedience. I worked for my house. This is my mortgage. I went to school and spent all this time. I worked hard on my team. I, I went to school to get these grades. I saved for my retirement. I am the king over these things. I can do what I want. I can talk to my kids the way I want to. I can... Talk to a teammate that's below me the way I want to. I can talk to anyone the way I want to. I am king. No, a wise leader knows their place. They are under the Lord God, the great king. And under his law, under his authority, and we will obey him in what he calls us to do, no matter what position we're in. And that's what David has done. I will not take the throne upon myself. I will obey the Lord even when I think it has been handed to me. You know, this word anointed, it's a very interesting word. It's funny that they translated this way in the ESV. You know, the word anointed in Hebrew is Messiah. The word anointed in Greek is Christ. See, at the end of the story, we see David says, the blood is on your head, for you said you have killed the Lord's Messiah, the Christ. And you say, come on, that's not fair. The guy didn't even kill Saul, but he's getting executed for it. 
It's funny, I hear the same thing in Christianity. How can God judge me for what happened to Christ? I wasn't there. I didn't kill him. The blood isn't on my hands. But we have testified with our lives. The blood is on our heads. That we have spoken like this messenger has spoken. I have killed the Lord's anointed. I have killed the Messiah. I have killed the Christ. Come on. I didn't realize who I was talking to. I didn't know who I was talking to. I didn't know what he had done. When you come forward to take communion, you come in front of a king that's not David. You come in front of a greater king. The one that took our rebellion, that took the blood that we deserve, the one, the good king, that said, I will die for you. I will sacrifice for you. The Lord's anointed, the Christ, the King. That is a good King. The story is not over for us. The question remains will we serve that good King? Will we come under His authority? Will we fear Him? Because the blood is on our hands. We have disobeyed the Lord's anointed. But there is good news, Christian. He has died for you. He has risen for you. He reigns in heaven next to our Father, saying, I am the King that you can obey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us a glimpse of good kings like David. And thank you for giving us a greater glimpse of your son, the great king, Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would see our place, who we are talking to. We are talking to the king that died upon the cross and rose from the dead for us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.